And we are back. Happy Monday. This is the uh, Centered from Reality podcast. I'm Alex Kapitko. I hope you had a good weekend. Here it was pretty damn cold. That's pretty much all I can say. Uh, let's see here. Saturday, it's about 20 degrees, but humid and blowing wind. I had to go downtown to pick up some documents, decided to run. Had to wear a lot of layers. The run there was fine, but then there was a Christmas parade, so I couldn't get any Ubers back. The metro was really busy, and it was too cold to go outside, so I just sat in a bar for a while and watched some sports. But, man, just like the 10-minute walk to the Uber I finally found to my apartment, brutal, brutally cold. Today's a little better. We see sun, so sun's always good. We're getting closer to 30 today. I guess we're not as bad weather-wise as what it looked like in Buffalo, so that's good. It's pretty bad when they have to move the Buffalo, who was it, Buffalo-Cleveland, I think, game to Detroit. It's bad when Detroit seems like the warmer option, but I guess it is an indoor stadium, so there's that. But anyways, I'm shot out of a cannon today. I want to talk about a lot of things. I want to talk about this just crazy rant, delusional rant, that FIFA's president gave over the weekend. I think it was on Saturday. And it turned off a lot more people, even if there was really not much else they could do to turn people off. They managed to piss off more people. This guy's a joke. I want to talk about his diatribe. Then I want to talk about Trump being back on Twitter, what that could mean, and my thoughts on that. I want to talk about, unfortunately, a tragic shooting at a gay nightclub in Colorado Springs that happened over the weekend, and some of the dynamics that we're starting to see with these shootings, and maybe we need to change how we tell people to respond because we're never going to get rid of guns, it seems like. So maybe we change how people react, which is depressing. I know it's dystopian, but here we are. And then last, I want to talk about what's been happening in Iran and basically whether the situation could lead to a revolution. I want to talk about some of the components of a revolution, what makes a revolution successful and why I think this would not be a revolution. Little spoiler. But anyways, I want to, yeah, let's start with the FIFA president spouts off and the delusions of FIFA's president, who is nuts. I've lost a lot of respect. Any respect that was left, I lost, basically. So I want to start with a, with a, just a great quote from the Atlantic article by Tom McTagg. It came out on Sunday, so yesterday. He writes in quotes here, Qatar hosting the Soccer World Cup is like Donald Trump becoming president of the United States. It should not have happened, but the very fact that it has only exposes how bad things have become. I think that is astute, accurate, and completely correct. And then in in the same article, he writes a bit later in quotes here, The tournament is taking place in November and December, which is midway through the European soccer season. This is as preposterous as running the World Series over Christmas week in Jeddah. (laughs) They might as well have uh, handed to buy the rights to the Winter Olympics as well. It's hilarious, honestly, and true. Very true. (laughs) I've talked a lot about my grievances with the World Cup, so I'm actually not focusing on that today. I'm just focusing on the man who's running FIFA because his actions tell me exactly why everything's wrong and why I despise this organization so much. So I will spare you the time on my grievances. Let's just get to the insane rant towards the media that FIFA's president Gianni Infantino did the night before the World Cup started. Look, I'm not a marketing expert. I've taken some marketing classes. Maybe the night before a big event that you want people to watch that's already controversial and everyone's pissed about it, maybe don't go on an hour-long rant that then just disturbs the media and makes everyone think it's bizarre. Maybe don't do that. 
Like, that's just my theory. Maybe I don't know. Maybe this will work. Maybe he wants to be controversial, but everyone I've talked to is pissed off about it. So it was an inaccurate, disturbing, long, bizarre, a lot of whataboutism. And basically in this speech, he tried to defend the decision to have the games in Qatar. And you just had, like, there's clips of the media. I recommend people looking. I'm not going to play it. It's an hour long, so I'm just going to give the highlights. But there's like a clip of the media and they just look appalled. Like, I don't know how else to say it. And CNN from yesterday, Sunday, even has a headline that says his tirade overshadowed the cup opener. And honestly, that's not an inaccurate statement. Now everyone's thinking about that. Good job, bro. And I was talking to a friend last night, or two nights ago, I guess, so Saturday night. And she was telling me that seeing all the things he said made her just decide she's going to double down and never watch any of these. And I don't blame her. I don't blame her, you know. So let's get into some of the stuff he said. So... The Washington Post writes here, in quotes, In a bizarre news conference the day before the World Cup began in Qatar, FIFA President Gianni Infantino dismissed concerns about Qatar's human rights record, compared himself to marginalized people, and took aim at critics of the country's hosting of the tournament. (laughs) He kind of did everything. I I don't know if he's playing um, oppression bingo, piss off the West bingo, a piss piss off human rights activist bingo. Maybe all of them. Maybe he's playing 4D bingo, which I'd be kind of down to play. But anyways, uh, the whataboutism, I think, was the most crazy part. But we'll get to that in a moment. Now, he started this rant by assuring the crowd that he knows what it's like to get picked on, right? Okay, he's trying to relate with the crowd, common crowd technique. And the reason was is because he had red air and freckles as a kid and got bullied for it. Okay, man, I'm sorry. You know, bullies are bad. Unfortunately, a lot of people are bullied. It's awful. Then he managed to compare this plight, right? Um, He compared his basically bullying to the plight of marginalized communities where, yeah, people were already shocked at him. And then it seems like he was basically like, hold my beer, or I guess alcohol-free beer because, you know, we're in Qatar. And he said, today I feel Qatari. Today I feel Arab. Today I feel African. Today I feel gay. Today I feel disabled. Today I feel like a migrant worker. Mm, God, man. (sighs) If tranquilizer darts were allowed, I'd say just hit him with one of those, get him out of there, because this is not doing well. Then he went on to discredit the claims about how migrant workers were killed in building the stadiums. Those have been corroborated by a lot of people, so I don't think it's lies. Then he discussed how the LGBTQ community would be safe and welcome in Qatar, and that basically people who were criticizing Qatar were just doing so to sow division and hate. He even said, and this one I really found fascinating, he said the gay community was very welcome in Qatar and everyone would be treated as equals. I'm sure FIFA might actually believe that, but I just don't think that's easy to believe. Like, even even if the government of Qatar has, like, promised them that they're going to be safe, do you think every police officer and every, like, government military organization is just going to be fine with letting that happen when they're trying to uphold a very traditionalist conservative Muslim society. I don't think so, but it's just fascinating. And, you know, the interesting thing here is that if you just read some of the things he said, you would almost think this was a hostage video, right? Just maybe due to FIFA's obligations with Qatar. But Infantino did not seem to blink twice, so that's always a sign. But he also seemed energized, And he seemed to truly believe what he was saying. I don't know if he's just been drinking too much alcohol-free beer there or what, but 
it was just kind of exhausting. I mean, okay, he has freckles and red hair and was bullied as a kid. So now he feels African, gay, and like a migrant worker. That's, do you really think that's going to solve these issues? Finally, though, if it couldn't get any worse, and this is one that always pisses me off, because I, I hear this same type of argument sometimes amongst progressives and kind of more radical socialist types, um, which there aren't a lot of, by the way. I'm not saying that there's a lot of radical socialists, but I think the worst part, if we can call it that, was when Infantino discussed Europeans who have criticized Qatar and FIFA's decision to hold the cup there, and he called it hypocritical. He used the rhetoric that I've seen, like I said, a lot of really far progressives use, and it always pisses me off. So basically, Infantino argued that Europeans can't criticize Qatar because they've done bad things in the past. He said in quotes, For what we Europeans have been doing in the last 3,000 years around the world, we should be apologizing for the next 3,000 years before starting to give moral lessons. Personally, <laughs> okay, so that, that rationale goes like, we did bad things. We've tried to reform. We've definitely made progress. This country is doing things that we did hundreds of years ago. We can't criticize them because at some point we did something bad as well, and we still have issues. Yeah, I think two things can be true at once here. You can say that countries like Infantino's Italy still have potential racism, but also they are not making it illegal or controlling society, not allowing the First Amendment type of free speeches, not even allowing people to drink, not allowing gay marriage. Like You could go on and on and on. It's insane. And of course, like I said, there's still racism and homophobia, uh, homophobia sorry, in places like the U.S. or England or Spain or Italy, where Infantino's from. But it has been legalized, and there's no direct systems that are basically criminalizing it. So, like, two things can be true here. You can say, yes, like Spain, for example, was awful in the New World when, after Columbus's discovery of it. But you could also say that Spain's done a lot for gay rights compared to Qatar and condemn Qatar for it, okay? Also, like, injustices in Qatar are racking up. And according to Infantino, we just can't criticize them because the West has also done bad things. I just think it's such a BS argument. It's this strange whataboutism mixed with like this almost like apologia tour that some of these people want to go on. And the guy just, it was troubling to watch this, to be completely honest. Like all jokes aside, it was kind of troubling to watch this because this is a guy who is running the World Cup. Uh, he's... Obviously, he's, he's actually not the president who was involved with actually securing this for Qatar. But it's almost like he's just been doing PR, and he's probably not even speaking what he believes, but he's in control. And I don't like organizations that do that whatsoever. Now, I will just say that I saw Ecuador play Qatar. <laughs> Fun little side note is that Qatar's actually never made the World Cup before, of course, until they paid to have the World Cup there. So that's always fun. But anyways, Ecuador won 2-0. The stands were not very busy because, yeah, I don't know if Ecuador-Qatar sounds like a fun game. No offense to the Ecuadorans because I, I, they look to have a good team, etc. But so far, at least the optics haven't looked great. So got to be fun to, de fun to see, sorry. So, But moving on from the delusions of FIFA's president, I want to talk about the delusions of two people. One is Elon Musk, who's good at some things, but not good at Twitter so far. The other is our former president, the Donald, Donald Trump, who, you know, has um, some issues, some issues to say the least. And Trump is back on Twitter after a lovely hiatus. I'll just get right to the point. Trump is back. It's finally happened. They've been wondering if he'd ever be back on Twitter, and it's happened. Apparently, Elon Musk posted a poll asking users of the site, and this was earlier in uh, last week, 
asking users whether he should, in quotes, reinstate former President Trump. And the poll was favorable, mainly from Twitter followers of Elon Musk. And the poll was favorable for putting Trump back on the platform. And overnight, basically, Elon Musk was like, if they want it, I'll do it. And Trump is back. Now, I've heard some people ponder whether the poll was manipulated by bots. Maybe. I don't know about that, though. Um, I think it was probably genuine. Maybe there was some bot influence, but it wouldn't surprise me if people actually that follow Elon Musk and are kind of in that circle want him back on there. There's a lot of people who never supported banning Trump on the platform. I'm not surprised at all. I've never particularly supported him you know, being off the platform. I don't think he's gone away with him being off the platform. I understand the arguments for why you'd want to take him off the platform, but I don't know. I've never been one for taking people off platforms. So do I care he's back? Not particularly. I I go back and forth on whether he's good on the platform, of course, and I'm open, I'm open to arguments for him being off, but I just haven't heard a compelling one enough when you have a lot of bomb throwers on there still to this day. So maybe that's my opinion, you know, criticize me for it, whatever, but that's how I feel about Trump on there. And anyways, it's kind of interesting. Last night, I decided to go on Twitter while I was watching a show before bed and on Twitter's homepage, there he is. There's Trump. I'm like, Jesus Christ. It's been, I kind of forgot this guy was even on Twitter. And the interesting part though, is he currently doesn't have any new tweets, but his old tweets are back, right? Like the, the last ones he ever posted from 2021, early 2021 are back. And they have kind of, they kind of have this feeling of being preserved, like the citizens of Pompeii or Herculaneum, right? Like this, this, this little capsule lost in time that you can look back and go, wow, I'm looking into a different era. It just seems like a strange moment because a lot has truly happened since the days Trump was, you know, dictating policies via tweet. A lot has changed since January 6th, right? His, his most recent tweet, I believe, was the one that dates back to January 8th. This was the day he was banned. And the tweet reads in quotes, to all of those who have asked, I will not be going to the inauguration on January 20th. That's crazy to me, like looking back at those. And you might not care about me ranting about this for a moment, but it's just fascinating. I don't know. I'm not going to lie. For a moment, I kind of felt nostalgia. Not purely positive nostalgia or nostalgia for the Trump era, so don't misquote me. But just a longing for a time that seems like things were different, like a time that has passed, where people were turning on Trump and the party was quiet and complacent with Trump, but they weren't as radicalized. Like, I've said it before and I'll say it again. It seems like things have gotten so much worse since those days. And so maybe that's why looking back at those, looking back at his new tweets, I almost want them preserved in time. I don't know if I want him tweeting anymore. Yeah, it's just so fascinating. And now one thing to note, though, about Trump being back on Twitter, though, is that he's been notably quiet. It's weird. It's weird when someone like Trump is notably quiet. He's not yet tweeted. Like I said, you wouldn't have found his January 8th tweet if he'd been tweeting more. And... This is some impressive radio silence for a guy like him, right? Let's be honest, though. I, I, think, I think it has to be because of Truth Social, right? And an Atlantic article notes that, in quotes here, the, that contractual obligations to Truth Social, the platform created to act as Trump's alternative online home during his Twitter ban, may actually limit what he can post to his newly revived account. Of course, you know, Truth Social is much smaller than Twitter, 
So one has to longer how long it will take for him to come back in full force. Like, this is a guy who doesn't listen to rules. Laws seem to just be a little bit of a roadblock. I'm sure he'll be back. He likes the attention, and he has a lot of followers. I, I, I believe I follow him. It's always interesting to see what he says. You know what I mean? And But then it opens up the door, like, will Trump be allowed back on Facebook now? Will this be a cascading effect? Probably. I, I would go more towards yes than no. We'll have to see. But yes, he is back. And as Twitter seems to be in somewhat of a midlife crisis, or at worst, in complete freefall, time will only tell us, isn't it just lovely that Musk has brought tw uh, Trump back? Such a fun time. What a time to be alive, in the words of Drake. Yeah, like I said, I'm shot out of the cannon this morning. But uh, on a sad note, we're going to stick in the U.S. for a moment with some actual news and some thoughts on it. There was yet another tragic shooting that has occurred. This time it was at a gay nightclub in Colorado Springs. I believe it happened close to midnight Sunday, so like late Saturday night into Sunday. This is another thing that I learned about as I was, you know, unwinding at the end of the night. And, you know, it always makes you feel bad when you, when you get these. And this is, a, this is not about me, but it's just the general sentiment of it is just like, good God. And sometimes it's hard to cover all of these or provide any thoughts on them because it really does get redundant. I don't mean that in a bad way or an unsympathetic way, but you end up sometimes brushing it off. You know, what I mean is that sometimes there's nothing to say. There's really nothing to say, and so you don't know what to say. In this case, I do have some things to say, by the way. So we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. But a wise man once said that if you do the same thing, you get the same result. And in the U.S., we keep doing the same thing, or I guess maybe lack of doing anything different. And we keep getting the same result, right? And I think that's why we have this just complacency set the efficacy of our system to do anything about it doesn't work. Anyways, last night's shooting was at a gay club, or I guess you could say more of an LGBTQ nightclub, which was in Colorado Springs. And at this time, at least five people were killed, 25 were injured. So, I mean, that's a pretty serious numbers. Not, not in a good way. And my first thought is that this is a huge shooting that could have led to a lot more people being hurt. I mean, when you're in kind of a closed area like a nightclub, it's very concerning, and but 30 people either dead or injured, plus the people that had to witness this attack. It's traumatic, it's tragic, and it's too common. And it's too bad, you know, of course, because this venue, which I guess was called Club Q, has kind of been described as a second home full of chosen family, right? Chosen family meaning it's a place for people to go who maybe need support, need a safe space, don't fit in with their actual family, and feel like there's a loving community for him. And it's always, unfortunately, it always seems like it's these type of places where something tragic happens. And it's just, it's just too bad to see. And of course, this is just a recent tragedy and a string of these attacks on the gay community. And right now, authorities are, are trying to figure out whether this was a hate crime committed by the shooter. He's, of course, unfortunately, in his, a male in his early 20s. Seems to be the, the standard. But... To me, it doesn't really matter if they're going to actually define it as a hate crime or not, because, I mean, it looks like it was. And that's me just speculating, but I think it was, you know. And NPR notes in quotes here, The gunfire came on the eve of Transgender Day of Remembrance, an annual observance on November 20th to commemorate the transgender people who have lost their lives because of anti-transgender hate. 
So it definitely seems like a hate crime, whether it's defined as that or not, right? It worked out in that light. Jared Polis, governor of Colorado, who's the first openly gay governor of Colorado. Side note, I, I think he's great. Libertarian-leaning governor. Um, he condemned the action and put out a good statement calling the event horrific, sickening, and devastating. He will do a good job of bringing them together. I think it's important that he's the person with a moral compass for this moment, no doubt. But either way, this just fucking sucks, you know. It's just disappointing to see again. And why this shooting, I guess you could say, also troubles me is because authorities have mentioned that the shooter, who, by the way, is alive, he was in possession of a long gun. And according to The Atlantic... It's probably likely that he may have killed more people because, like I said earlier, they're in such a confined space, and it took the actions of two, in quotes, heroic people inside the club to stop him. And this shooting and other recent shootings seem to ignite kind of this debate about whether people in a mass shooting should run, hide, or fight. And in this case, it looked like there was, le- there was, there was you know, were, were at least a few people that decided to confront the gunman and prevented the event from escalating further. And basically, this same Atlantic article wonders if run, hide, or fight is really the correct way for responding to an active shooter situation. The article reads, and bear with me because it's a little bit long, but I think it's worth, worth reading, is that if we are to be guided by facts and consider our training safety based on the available evidence, then we need to further assess whether in an age when so much damage can be done so quickly by guns that should not be on the street, Run, hide, fight is still the correct public messaging. So basically asking, is that the right messaging when the prevalence of these is happening? The article goes on, with killers having the capacity to end the lives of so many people so fast, neither running nor hiding may be the best first option. It is our reality. I don't love it. I don't even like it. In the article, which is called Rethinking, Run, Hide, and Fight, by Juliet Kayum also brings up some troubling insights, and it's worth noting. You know, it notes that, uh, in quotes here, the chaos and delays in saving children in Uvalde, Texas, have also raised skepticism about police response capabilities. According to the FBI, nearly 70% of all actor shooter incidents end before police arrive. Nearly 37% of them end in two minutes or less. In the United States, we are vulnerable to gun violence at any moment. And, I mean, it brings up a, a valid point, is like, if you're running or hiding, I mean, if you can get out, obviously do it. But in these type of scenarios, if they end so quickly, something needs to be done, I think. And I think this shooting is troubling because if these couple heroes had not have stopped the shooter, a lot more people would have likely died. And I think people are prepared to hide and wait for authorities. And we're seeing that that's just not a possibility, especially after the revelations of Uvalde, especially. So this is not me, you know, giving specific advice but i'm just saying like i think there does need to be change in how we assess these situations and teach people to deal with them and it it sucks like i said earlier it really does suck because this shouldn't be how we're looking at these events but unfortunately it is so there's not much else i can say there at this time but i want to get out of the u.s for a moment i know there's a lot of things to talk about in the u.s right now but I haven't really said much about what is happening in Iran. It's again one of those things that happened during my little hiatus. And, you know, it's kind of hard to go back and do a lot of context. But I am kind of concerned slash fascinated if if that's a way to look at it. Because I, I've always been interested in revolutions. So 
I kind of want to get into like what's happening in Iran a little bit, give my thoughts, and why I don't think people should be, get excited and think anything's going to change. A little bit of a spoiler there, but I'll explain why in a moment. So I think everyone now is aware of what happened. Oh, it was probably about two months ago now. It was like late September. And it's the death of the Kurdish woman, uh, Masa Amini, who was arrested for basically showing her hair underneath her veil. That's a whole other conversation. Very feminist of them. <laughs> but uh, the state has cracked down on protests because this basically sparked just a massive, like, angry movement against the government, which is understandable. And the protests have really spread throughout the country, but the state has cracked down and they've become violent. People have died international condemnation is occurring. This is also happening at a time where, you know, I've talked about Iran's closer and closer ties with Russia. Not great. There's so many questions I have, you know, about whether Iran was willing to be more open when the United States and other Western allies were working with it, or if it was just playing us. There's so many questions I have. The state, though, really has made these look pretty ugly, especially because it's just women especially a Kurdish woman who was arrested for showing her hair beneath her veil, you know, and we've seen more Iranian attacks on Kurdish parts. Um, the Kurds have never been particularly too welcomed by the Iranian regime. So it's always interesting to see. Good responses, like, have been how art and music have been used to piss off the regime. I know there's been rappers. One was recently arrested for basically turning all the plight of what's been happening into music. I think that's always kind of cool to see. Graffiti and other forms of art have also been very important. The Economist actually has a good article about how graffiti is showing up in big cities like Tehran, and it's really changing the landscape. Sorry, um, They're painting pictures that depict the leaders in bad light, like there's the one of the Khomeini um, with like a bleeding eye. There's others of like Islamic idols and stuff that have been kind of made a mockery of. I'm sure that's not going well with the state, but it is interesting to see how different forms of art have been used. And last week, I want to say it was, there were also reports of Iranian authorities looking to sentence and even execute thousands of prisoners from these events that have been taking place. Apparently that's not true. I've found out that basically the Iranian government holds votes for some of these affairs. And while I'm not an expert... I guess there were groups inside of the lawmaking divisions who wanted to hold a vote on this, but the votes never passed. I also think it would have been stupid to start executing thousands of prisoners, because I, I think I remember the report was like 15,000 prisoners have been detained and are going to be executed. That would just cause, I think, mass unrest, and there would just cause chaos, so it's good they didn't do that. But what, what seems to be the case is that there are like over 15,000 protesters who have been detained. So I think maybe that's where they're getting that information. Of course, there's lack of independent reporting that's really easy to verify in Iran. But foreign observers like the Human Rights Activist News Agency have been looking at these things. And their numbers show over 15,000 have been detained and over 300 have been killed since the protest began. To me, that sounds more reasonable. Still way too many, especially for something as simple as a headscarf. I know there's people that'll push back and say it's, you know, seen as part of the Islamic culture, maybe, but when the women want to take them off and the men in charge say no, I don't know if it's as much about protecting, like, culture anymore. Maybe it's what the men view as culture, but I've always been one who's had issues with, with those things, and sometimes that'll get me in trouble, but I've always just felt that I don't see it as a free and fair situation when it's the 
fundamentalist men in charge who are deciding. And then they say, well, the women like it. I'm like, well, they don't seem to be liking it because we're looking at mass protests across the country over it. And then we're looking at the state come down with an iron fist. But anyways, there are still a lot of protesters detained. Just not as many have been executed, thank God. Now, I, I was thinking about this because I, I watched uh, Hostages on HBO, which is, which is a pretty good documentary. You know, it's, it's obviously biased. There's, there's some angles to it that maybe people won't like. Maybe it's not completely always unbiased if you want to say that but it does a really good job of painting how the shah decimated the state how the u.s propped him up and yeah there was a class of people doing well but the fundamentalists in rural areas were impoverished and getting more radicalized and a lot of the young population had no hope and there was a large young population and it looks at how basically the khamenei was in exile in france and he kind of took advantage of a moment where you had like kind of a socialist leftist movement of young people along with fundamentalist conservatives and ironically they actually worked together to support the revolutionary movement throughout the shah because they were just against like american involvement and it kind of backfired probably if we now look at it what about 40 plus years later probably did backfire and what this documentary kind of reminded me like Obviously, there's, they interview the hostage takers and the hostages and the Iran hostage crisis, but that's not what I'm as much concerned about. It seems like the Khamenei was very willing to kind of take advantage of the situation, and now, obviously, the government's still been the same. We have the second one since the first one died. And what I was thinking, though, is that revolutions seem to happen when you have kind of this pyramid effect where the majority of the population is young, poor, and angry. You had the Shah holding this, like, I forget the numbers exactly, but he basically brought in Parisian food and Americans like Barbara Walters was there and all the elites and American diplomats. And this was in the 70s. And it was out in the desert to honor, like, the thousandth or two thousandth anniversary of the Ottoman Empire. And, you know, you have people starving, looking for jobs, and you have the, the... the Shah basically living lavishly, and then he's propped up by the U.S. and they're getting weapons. And so you have a young, angry population who I think was definitely open to Soviet thought. And you also had a radicalized, not even radicalized, but a very conservative rural Muslim community. And it just seemed like that was kind of the tipping point, you know. And I don't know if this could be the case again, though, is the question. Because right now we also see a large amount of the population unhappy with the ruling elites. And so the question is, is this a possible revolution? And I would probably say no. I would probably say no. And this is not because I don't want there to be a revolution. In all honesty, I would prefer there to be some form of a revolution if it meant making a more secular system. But the Atlantic Council has a good article from back in, I think it was, yeah, late September. And it says here, despite the widespread protests and international support, one has to be cautious in predicting the outcome. And I would agree with that. The one thing I would also add is that there's a key ingredient missing. So usually the government, and this is something that's kind of key in political science, military dynamics, and uh, foreign policy, is that usually a revolution happens when the government loses its monopoly on force, on the armed forces, and on security. And the Shah, 
the Shah had clearly lost that during the Iranian Revolution. You had, <laughs> you had a lot of people turning on the Shah, and that's why he no longer felt protected and eventually left the country. And the Atlantic Council seems to also agree with this. Um, there's a part in the article that writes, So far, the security forces of the Islamic Republic remain intact, and the state has continued to rely on the law enforcement forces and plainclothes agents to crack down on protesters. Meanwhile, the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps, which is tasked with protecting the revolution from internal and external threats, has not been deployed, perhaps because the state feels secure enough without it. And that is something to note, is like, <laughs> the IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, usually they're going to get involved if there's a severe threat of a revolution. And it's also important to know that the government is that secure in the power they have that they're not even worried about employing them, or deploying them, sorry. So that is something I think to note, is because it was very different in the 70s. And for example, in the 1979 revolution, the Imperial Guard and just the regular army were the ones who protected the Shah, the monarch, and the state, right? And they collapsed even before the Shah actually finally left Iran, and they couldn't protect the former regime. So that's when he knew he could no longer have monopoly over security and monopoly over violence. It was time to leave. And this is common in other, other revolutions as well, is that you need a monopoly on force, and it's when the military turns on you or the security forces. I mean, I think the thing is with the uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, that was part of the problem when the, revolutionary uh, when the revolution actually happened was that the Shah already had secret police in place that were already locking up thousands and thousands of people. And so as soon as the revolution took place, there was already an infrastructure in place. But that does not seem to be the case in this one. Also, I was reading in that um, Atlantic Council article that key cities, for example, like Tehran, are still under control of the government and armed forces, and there's no fear of that changing. So I think that is significantly different. And the other reason why I do not think a revolution is anything that's going to be coming is that there's really no alternatives. There's really not a strong opposition to the Islamic Republic, for example. It's either fractured, weak, or exiled. Like, yeah, the Shah's son, whose name is escaping me, there is a son of the Shah who apparently some claim has legitimacy to power. Now, I'd like to see how that goes because he would probably only be propped up by some of the John Bolton types, right? Or the more elite secular classes. And um, I would also say that they're either irrelevant as well, or like I said, they've been rejected or exiled by most of the Iranian people. Again, I'll reiterate it is that we have to remember that back in 1979, the society was highly divided. Sectarianism was happening, but also secularism was happening. I remember watching that documentary and there was, you know, a lot of the younger population was wearing like, I can't think of some of the bands at the time, but they were kind of into the hippie culture. You know, like there was a very Western secularism that was popular, especially in the cities. Like this was a society that kind of almost could more mirror some of the Western issues we have today, where you have like a very liberal, secular, metropolitan culture, followed by a more rural, conservative, religious society, right? And I guess you could say before the Iranian Revolution in 79, it seemed like the society had kind of strong groups on both sides. But since those days, since the Iranian Revolution happened, since the control of the state, since you have like the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps come into power, it seems like the secular society has either been put into the closet, silenced, or just completely quashed. And I think that's where it gets complicated is like, 
who picks up the pieces, even, even if we're seeing mass protests, even if we're seeing all this stuff, who picks up the pieces and actually could lead? And I just don't see that. Also, when you have a control of the media, you also have, yeah, things like the Iran nuclear deal, which haven't worked out. I just don't see there being a big appetite to welcome in Western influence or to like take a more secular approach again. So I just hate to be Debbie Downer, but I think even though a lot of people probably hope for change, I don't see it coming. So anyways, talked about a lot of random things today. Sorry. Like I said, I was shot out of the cannon. A lot happened over the weekend. There's a lot of things I wanted to share and um, happy Monday. So take care. Let me know. Am I wrong on this or... Are the factors in place again? Anyways, take care. Have a great rest of your day. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, whatever else there is. Bye-bye.